I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've actually prepared for that. We've got Bibles on the, at the center of each aisle, up under the chair at the, the middle of each aisle. Um, if you want to flag somebody down who's sitting down there, they will pass one down to you. We'd love for you to take that with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to follow along with us, for example, starting this morning, um, and to track with us as we unpack what God has said in His Word. And then we'd love to follow up with you and talk to you later about what you've read there and what we've talked about this morning, if that's something that you're interested in. Um, if, you, if, you, if you use one of the Bibles that we've provided, you'll find the passage we're going to look at this morning on page 1022. And it's really helpful to have it in front of you because what we're going to be trying to do is to pick apart the details of this passage. We're going to be referring back to it over and over again this morning because our goal here each week is to try to understand what the Bible says. We believe that God has spoken to us in the Bible, that if we want to understand who God is and what he's done and what he tells to us, both about who we are and what he offers, that the Bible is, is what we need more than anything. So we come here each week to, to submit to it, to sit under it, to try to understand it, and then to try to think about together what it would mean to, to be obedient to it and to trust in it. And that's what we're going to do here in the next few minutes. And we'd love to have you following along with us. Look at page 1022 and you'll find the section that we're going to be looking at today. Today we're celebrating, like I've said already many times this morning, we're, uh, we are celebrating with Christians all over the world the radical claim that unites us. The claim that gets us out of the bed, not just on Easter Sunday, but on every day when we've got eyes to see it. And that is this claim, a claim that a man lived a real life in history in one particular set of years, that he lived a real life in a real body that you could have seen if you'd have lived at the time and known him, that that real body took on a brutal death at the hands of the powers that be. And that body was laid in a real grave, a tomb carved from stone and capped by a huge uh, stone that was rolled over the entrance to it. What we celebrate today is a claim that in history, on a particular day, that body that had really died really did come back to life. That body walked the earth again. That body ate food again. That body had hands that could be extended to his friends in fellowship to hug them, to be touched by them. And that that body still exists today, 2,000 years later, as a token of hope, as a reminder that our bodies too can go on forever. Not these shells we're living in now, but ones that will be just like Jesus' body, ones that he will give to us one day to replace these bodies that are breaking down and wearing away, a body that will go on forever. That's the hope that Christians get out of bed for every morning. I know it sounds crazy. You have no reason to believe in it except for the fact that Jesus really did rise again. And if he rose again when he was really dead, then he's got the authority and the power to offer promises like this to us and then deliver on them. And that's what we've come here today to think about. The resurrection not as a kind of ideal, not as a kind of solidarity in affirmation of life, not the kind of sentimental vibes that come when we think on happy thoughts, but this claim about history that promises a new creation, a new way of being, a new world that's already begun to come because Jesus is alive and that one day will come completely. Because this hope, this hope of, of new creation, 
A, f- a creation free of death and decay and tears is, is such a consistent theme through the Bible because it runs through it, Old Testament and New Testament alike. One thing we like to do here in our church on Easter is to, is to celebrate the fact that this theme is everywhere by just looking at whatever part of the Bible we happen to be in when Easter rolls around and finding some resurrection hope in that section of the Bible. So right now we're in 1 John. It's a letter written by an early Christian follower of Jesus who knew him personally in all likelihood and, and was responsible for helping other people come to know him, understand what he taught, what he was like, and what he promises. And 1 John, like every other part of the scriptures, points us to the hope that Easter calls us to, to as well. It points us to the hope that one day we will not be what we are now. That what we see around us may be passing away, but a new day is dawning. And that day is a, is a promise, not just for, for the people John wrote to, not just for a select and lucky few now, but for you, if you'll claim it. A promise for you of a newness of life that can be yours. I want us to look together today at a passage we've already considered once. Looked at it together maybe a month, month and a half ago in 1 John chapter 3. An incredible passage about what God has done in Christ for us, but also a passage about what he will do. And one of the reasons I want to focus here is that it's so important for us to recognize the resurrection, the promise that Jesus became alive again, even when he was dead, is, is a belief that should affect us, that should change how we see ourselves. It should change how we interact with the world. It's not like some other beliefs. It's what's called the self-involving belief. When you believe it, it changes you. I've been seeing uh, headlines lately about uh, UFOs. For some reason, the UFOs have have come back into the public view. I mean, maybe for some of you, they never leave the public view. I usually don't think about them except for when some summer blockbuster comes out that focuses on them again. But I've been seeing like major mainstream media headlines about UFOs and declassified documents showing that the government believes in them and all that sort of stuff. But honestly, I mean, I've, I've known people who are into UFOs who really believe them, but they didn't change their life at all. It's an interesting belief, one that they think they had evidence for, but I mean, it didn't affect how they spent their money or affect how they related to their friends or affect whether or not they had hope for their futures. It didn't affect them. It didn't have to. Not a self-involving belief. But the claim that Jesus is God who became human, who died, and who rose again, The claim that this Jesus offers promises to anyone who will trust in him that they too, though they die, can live again and live forever. Well, if you believe that, it changes things. It should. And so one of our goals each Easter is to try to see how. What changes would it make to how I see myself? What would it look like to have an identity that's based on the resurrection? And 1 John chapter 3 helps us get there. It helps us show what it would look like for us to know ourselves through what's happened to Jesus. I want to show you just briefly, because we've already been over this text once. You can get a lot more details than I'm going to share with you this morning in an audio file on our website where I go through this text in in a lot more detail. Today, because we've already been over it once, I'm just going to take the chance to sort of meditate on it, to to just think together about what encouragement we can find for who we are in light of who God has said he can make us to be in Jesus. Because at the end of the passage, I'm going to read you in a moment, John says that everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That claim is that we can have a kind of hope in Jesus that starts to change us now, that starts to renovate our hearts from the ugliness that's already in there and purify them so they love what's right and worthy. 
We want to see how that's possible. What would it look like for us to have a hope in Jesus that starts to change us now? I want us to consider what Jesus' resurrection has to do with who you are and what Jesus' resurrection has to do with what you'll be. Who you are now and what you'll be. I want to begin by reading a few verses from 1 John 3. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord to each of us this morning. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. When the meaning of Jesus' resurrection takes root in our hearts, friends, it forces out what else we might love and cherish and pursue. I want to show you how that's true in two steps this morning. I want us to first consider Jesus' resurrection and who you are. It's pointed to in verse 1 that we just read together. Before John looks ahead to what will be, before we look ahead to what will be this morning, he reminds us what our hope is based on. That there is something that's true right now, already. Something that, that, that isn't waiting anymore. That's here, now. Something that's present that gives us confidence and joy when we look ahead to what's not yet. And what he celebrates here, what he puts in front of us as the present reality for everyone who trusts in Jesus, it depends completely on Jesus' resurrection. I want to show you that. It hangs completely on Jesus being alive today even though he was really dead. I want to show you how that's true. Let me read verse 1 again for you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and, and so we are. First time we looked at this passage, one of the things that was most interesting to me, one of the background details that I had to learn from an expert commentary, is this phrase, see what kind of love the Father has given. This what kind of love phrase. It was a phrase that was used back then for things that were especially foreign to you. Something unexpected, unprecedented, something you hadn't seen before. Like, what kind of love? A couple years ago in a um, white elephant party, our family ended up with a fruit called a pomelo. Anybody know what a pomelo is? A couple of your hands, you guys know what a pomelo is. You're responsible for it. Like three of you know what a pomelo is. It's a fruit. From the outside, it kind of reminds me of a mango in color and shape, though apparently they can grow as big as a watermelon. Once you've hacked through about a half an inch of rind, you get to a relatively small inner heart of fleshy citrusy fruit that actually look kind of like a grapefruit and taste like one that's about two weeks past date. <laughs> I remember when we got this thing and we consumed it thinking, what kind of fruit? Is, what is this? We've never experienced anything like it before. Same phrase is used in one of the Gospels. It talks about Jesus. Uh, he, he's sleeping in a boat. There's a storm. 
that's tossing their boat around like crazy and his friends all think they're dead. They think it's over. They're crying out to him. Finally, he wakes up. He stands up nonchalantly. I imagine him with his hands in his pockets. And he says, peace, be still. And this storm that had been tossing his friends around like rag dolls stops immediately. No more waves, no more wind. The forces that have dwarfed every human that's ever faced them throughout all of time listen to him and obey. And his disciples say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And John's using that phrase here. When he thinks about God and his love for us, he says, what kind of, what world does this come, what is this? He's never seen anything like it. That we should be called children of God? We? What kind of love is this? What is it that's so amazing about God loving humans so that they become his children? Often, to be honest, I'm not amazed by it. I don't feel amazed at the notion that somebody would love me. I love me. Why wouldn't you love me? What's not to love about me? I, I don't feel dwarfed by the promise of God's love. It seems appropriate. Maybe especially when we're talking about God. Sometimes, sometimes we can even think of God as defined by his love for us. That, that he, that's who he is, is to love. He's a character that comes into our story. We're the hero of the story. The world is all really a, a theater stage for our acting. And God's role in our play is to be the one who comes in and gives us what we need. Or who comes in and rescues us from when, when we're in distress. Of course he loves us. That's who he is. That's what he does. Why wouldn't he? We can struggle to think about God's love as this otherworldly shocking reality when we think of ourselves as worthy of love problem is that I, I just got the wrong view of myself. I imagine myself as one of those adorable, soft, cuddly puppies in those commercials for animal rescue societies. You know which ones I'm talking about? My wife is a sucker for these things. They, they, they just, they, there's some sort of soft music in the background, some soft focus in the background, and then a crystal clear image of a puppy with big eyes, almost teary, looking through some sort of cage bars at you. Vulnerable weak and defenseless but sweet and adoring and just longing for you longing to sit at your feet and eat your food and walk with you wherever you want whenever you want and I think of myself that way sometimes who wouldn't want to save me but John knows better about us the background to this passage on God's love is some ruthless brutal truth about what's in our hearts and John knows what the message of the Bible. On the one hand, there is nothing more beautiful or more wonderful in all of the world than a human being. Humans are made in God's image. They are given something of His power and creativity and His beauty to reflect. That's true. At that level, there isn't anything in this world more lovable than another human. But there is another side to us that's just as common to every human that's ever lived and that thing is like a cancer in us. A cancer that's behind genocide, trafficking, school shootings. It's the same one that's behind thoughtless words or words that aim to kill or gossip, loose talk about others when they're not around. It's a self-regard that trumps all other motives in us. And that's, a, that's something in our heart that toward God leads us to deny Him and neglect Him and sometimes with 
with better self-awareness, outright oppose him. You could be doing this even if you don't think of him as existing this morning. Think about this. If he does exist, maybe you don't think that he does, but if he does, if he's behind every breath you've ever breathed, if, if he's the source of every good gift you've ever enjoyed in your life, if he's the only reason you live at all, in other words, if he really is who the Bible says that he is, would you really see you as adorable, loving, defenseless puppy? Or would it make more sense to see you as an enemy, hostile to him, worshiping things that he's made instead of him? For John, the fact that God would love us is otherworldly because he knows what's true about us. And maybe you need to be challenged to think differently about yourself. Maybe you need a different kind of challenge this morning, though. Maybe, actually, you don't have trouble understanding why God wouldn't love you. You don't expect anybody could love you. You're wondering how anyone possibly could. Maybe you get that you're living amongst the rubble that your selfishness has brought into your life. You can see its effects all around you. You don't have any trouble imagining yourself as helpless, unprotected, exposed with nowhere to hide and nothing left to be done. If that's where you are this morning, then you need to know that desperation is precisely where God's adoption of you into his family begins. Where there's nowhere else to turn, where there's no one else to look to, where every other source of hope has left you dry, empty. If what we were talking about was normal, this worldly love, you wouldn't be wrong about yourself. But John's not amazed at God's love because God gives everyone what they deserve. That wouldn't amaze John. If God's love were some result of some sort of good behavior, it would fit in perfectly with what we already expect about how the world works. That's familiar. That's not foreign to us. You might even say it's necessary and just. If somebody gives you a haircut, somebody serves you a latte, you, you give them what it costs. Maybe you tip them on top of that. That's just how the world works. It's necessary. And if God loves those who love him, if God gives good things to those who work for him, if God is for all those who are for him, well, that's not otherworldly and foreign at all. That just makes sense. That's the way of the world, this world. But John knows that's not what's happened at all. He's amazed at the love the Father has given to us, bestowed on us, gifted freely to us when we didn't deserve it. He's amazed because he knows the truth about Christianity. It's not what you might think. It isn't a lifestyle you try to fulfill. It isn't some status you try to attain. It isn't something you try at all. It is something that is given to you. Something that is wrapped around you like a new set of clothes. It is a new status into which you are placed by the power and the love and the grace of the God who made you. And because John knows what's true about those God is adopting into his family, he says, what kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are. It's true. We are. See, John knows what it cost God to love us like this. He knows 
that God sent his only begotten son. That he gave up what was most precious to him. So that anyone who believes in him should not perish like they deserve to, but have everlasting life. For God to love sinners like us, someone has to account for that sin. John has already talked about Jesus as an advocate for sinners who was what he calls a propitiation for their sin. That means a sacrifice, a debt payer. For God to love us and make us his children depends on what's celebrated on Good Friday. The death of the God who made us on a cross in our place so that we can be made new, whole, forgiven, and clean, completely and forever. And with that background, behind God's adoption of us into his family, here's what you need to know about the resurrection. The resurrection is the only sign you should ever need that your debt, friend, has been paid in full. You are loved by the God who sees you more clearly than you see yourself. He has held nothing back that he's just waiting to throw in your face sometime down the road. When he died, his last words were, it is finished. He knew what that meant. He had the right to say it, and it is finished your status in his family is not pending we are children of God now John says and the resurrection is the proof that means you are not what you came in here feeling you are not what others have told you you are you are friend who you are to God And in Jesus, that means you are beloved child now. That's what Jesus' resurrection means for who you are. And that's what's packed into that first verse that we've read together this morning. From here, John looks ahead. And I want to look ahead too. I want us to think together with the few minutes we've got left at what Jesus' resurrection means for what we will be. This is where John turns to the future in verse 2. We are God's children now. That's already true. What we will be, John says, has not yet appeared. He's humble. He knows it's not worth speculating completely on what's still to come. He hasn't been told exactly what it's going to look like. That's a gift, as one person put it, that's marked, don't open until Christmas. Only, in this case, Christmas is Jesus appearing. Christians are hoping for a day when the body of Jesus that's as real as mine or yours reappears to us. Because when that day comes, we will become like him. That's what John is saying. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just something that happened to Jesus. It's something that will happen to all who trust in him. Paul talks about this using agricultural imagery. He talks about it as a first fruits. Jesus as the first yield of the harvest. Showing that if, if, if this Jesus has already come, if this harvest has already begun, we know it'll, it'll carry on. The first piece of fruit that shows up is a sign that more fruit is coming and it's an organic process it's all a package deal it's unstoppable and it's already in in play so so we look ahead to what happened to jesus as a sign of what will happen to us that's what john is telling us here look ahead look what happened to him and know it can happen to you so what happened to him what is he like john is telling us when he appears again we will be like him 
And I'll be honest, I, I don't immediately connect with that kind of language because I don't know that much about, I haven't experienced directly what Jesus is like right now. And maybe you're feeling that too, that, that to be told that you're like Jesus it doesn't really, wouldn't rank high on the things that you're hoping for your future. And so I want to just marinate in it for a little bit. I want to just think about what the Bible has told us. There's a lot it hasn't told us. There is more we don't know about what we will be than what we do know. But we, what we do know is precious. It's powerful. And what I hope you'll see here in a few minutes, it's exactly what you've been wanting all along. What will it be to be like Jesus when he appears? I want to just point you to two things that John has been talking about already in this letter. Two things about God, about God who's come to us in Jesus, and about what will be when that day comes. What does it mean to be like Jesus, to be resurrected just like him, to have the body and the life he has now? Two things. First, it'll mean that we'll be holy. To be like Jesus is to be holy. John has described God as light. He's told us that in him there is no darkness at all. He has no reason to hide anything. He wants people to see him as he is. What he is is glorious. Why hide it? What he is is pure. Why downplay it? He is light and in him there is no darkness. But my life doesn't feel that way. Not yet. Don't you hate hiding? Hate like that there's something about you that you just can't be fully honest about. You know what that feels like. We hate it, but we still do it. We know that some things are wrong, but keep doing the same things over and over, don't you? And, and, and even, our own, even our best actions, even the ones that people celebrate, slap us on the back for it, tell us they wish we're, we're more true of them. Even those things if we're honest, are often mixed with self-serving motives. We want to be seen and appreciated. It hurts us when we're not. Many of us live with shame over things that we've done, we can't hide from, we can't change, we know others know, and we live with that cloud. Even the most self-confident among us knows what it is to wish we were different than what we were. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Why do I keep doing the same things over and over? Who will deliver me, he cries out in Romans 7, from this body of death? For now, even if, in, even where God is doing miracles in our lives to make us more like Jesus, we are not like him, not yet. We are not holy. We are his children. If we trust in him, nothing can change that. But our experience of life is a far cry from what we want it to be. But one day, it won't be. (laughs) One day, it, it won't be. One day, we will be like him. Light with no darkness at all. We will have nothing to hide. We will have no reason to hide it. We will have nothing but the holiness that defines our Lord now. We will be beautiful and worthy like Him. And what John says in verse 2 is that the reason we'll be like Him in this way when He appears is that we'll see Him. 
One of my favorite things we talked about when we went over this passage in the first time was how beautiful this phrase is. What it is that makes us holy, perfectly pure, just like Jesus, is that we see him. Here's how I think of that connection, what, what seeing him will do to our holiness. I think about us now as being surrounded by a world of options. And we're like, if you imagine our lives now as a kind of romantic comedy, right now we're like the playboy who's in the party, sort of jumping around from girl to girl, seeing you know, how far he can get with each one, how much he can impress her. We, we live in our lives like that now. We've got good things all around us, and our heads are constantly being turned. We're constantly looking for satisfaction from our work, from our relationships, from, from sex or money or wherever else you might be thinking about this morning. We're constantly having our heads turned. We're hopping around like a playboy at a, at a cocktail party in a romantic comedy. But one day, one day we will see him. We will see him as he is. And it'll be like that scene in the comedy where all of a sudden the strings start playing in the background and everything turns to soft focus except this tunnel-like vision on her as she enters the room. People's mouths are still moving, but you don't hear what they're saying. People are still laughing and having a good time, but it's lost on you. All you see is her. All you wonder is, does she see me? All you wonder is, where's she going to sit? Maybe could I sit next to her or not? All you wonder is, will she like what I'm wearing? All you wonder is, will I come off as funny? All you see is her and the purifying effect of what you see is to turn everything else into nothing. One day, Jesus will appear. And when we see him as he is, our hearts will want nothing else but him. We will love purely because we will love him and him alone. Above all, purity is about love in John's letter. It's not about just what you reject. It's about what you say yes to. It's about what you want. Our holiness will flow from our love of the one we see in all his beauty for the first time. And when we see him, we will only want what is right. We will only want what he wants. And why wouldn't we? To be like him one day is to be holy, purely loving what is most lovable. There's one other thing I want to mention, though. One other thing that's been a theme for John, not as much as this holiness theme, but still there, still important. To be like Jesus one day. When we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. What will we be like? Well, we'll be holy, but we will also be eternal. To be like Jesus will to be, will be, to, to be like him eternal. One day, one day because of his resurrection, in a body that's new and living like his, we, friends, we will love forever beyond the reach of time and decay and death and all the sorrow that they unleash in this world and in our lives. One day, what we love won't break our hearts. It will be ours to possess forever. John has hinted towards this already in his letter a couple of times. In chapter 2, he warned his friends against loving the world or the things in the world because they're passing away, he says in verse 17 of chapter 2. 
But whoever does the will of God, he says there, abides forever. Same theme comes up a little bit later, just before our passage in verse 25 of chapter 2. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. We, like him, will be forever. And when he appears, this promise will be true. Not just for our future, but in our reality. We will be like our resurrected first fruits. And friends, you weren't made to settle for less. This longing to be like him, to be eternal, is deep in you, even if you haven't had the right words to describe it. It is deep in you. It was made to be deep in you. A couple years ago, I read a really interesting piece in The New Yorker by an author named Catherine Schultz. Some of you may have heard me mention this before. It's called When Things Go Missing. Really interesting read. She uh, is writing partly to cope with the loss of her father the year before and the effect that that it had on her life. She talks about how, how with, with most things that you lose, most things that go missing, uh, there's a kind of hope built in, the hope of finding again. Uh, when we were home for Christmas this last year, uh, my mother found a class ring that my father had lost when I was just a little kid. Uh, it was his Auburn University class ring. He had lost it when I, you know, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. And I remember it worked out great for us kids because he thought he'd lost it at the park. And so we'd go back to the park all the time. He was looking for this ring. And finally, he had, he, he'd stopped looking for it at the park. 30 years later, my mom's cleaning out some cedar chest or something up in her attic, and it falls out of a blanket onto the floor. There's this class ring. A couple years ago, we lost Lindsay's wedding rings twice. Two separate years with leaf bagging. You know, we, you, know, you know, leaf bagging. We rake them up, you grab the leaves, and you shove them down into the, to the bags from Home Depot. And, um, and then you tape them up, and you, you, they'll, they'll come and carry them away. Well, she had lost her ring. She just realized they're not there. We had to borrow a metal detector from our friends and like, go around the bags and try to find which bag the rings were in. We found them both times, thanks be to God. But when, when the, in the losing of those things, there was this built-in sense of hope almost that maybe they'll be found again. So it even gave us purpose. Drive and orientation for life in those moments gave us something to do. A lot of times when we lose things, it feels like that. But things lost to time, friends, things lost to time, they aren't like that at all. By definition, the things we lose to time never come back. And if you set your heart on anything in this world where everything is passing away, you are going to get your heart broken. And the more you enjoy it while you have it, the more it's going to hurt you when you lose it. It's like everything we have, we pay for on a credit card. To enjoy it is going to require us to pay it down later as we lose it. Schultz wrote, when we're experiencing it, loss often feels like an anomaly, a disruption in the usual order of things. In fact, though, it, it is the usual order of things. Entropy, mortality, extinction. The entire plan of the universe consists of losing. And life amounts to a reverse savings account in which we are eventually robbed of everything. Our dreams and plans and jobs and knees and backs and memories. The childhood friend, the husband of 50 years, the father of forever, the keys to the house, the keys to the car. Sooner or later, all of it drifts into the valley of lost things. To one degree or another, all of you have already experienced this and many of you are living under this cloud acutely right now. 
But what Schultz has written, what we've experienced, raises a really interesting question. If losing things to time is just basic, normal experience, if it's even universal, why are we so surprised when it happens? Why are we surprised by time's passing and what it does to us? C.S. Lewis reflects on this question in one of his essays on the Psalms. He writes, We are so little reconciled to time that we're even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies, as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It's as strange, Lewis writes, it's as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. (laughs) He's right, isn't he? And that would be strange indeed, Lewis writes, unless, (laughs) unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. Friend, you are surprised by what time is doing to you and to everything you love because you were not made to experience life like this. You were made to be eternal. You were made to love forever. And because Christ is risen, you won't always be like this. One day, you'll be like Him. One day, What you love most, you can't possibly lose. Because to be like Him will to be holy. Focused on Him with every bit of your heart's affection. And to be like Him will to be eternal. To go on and on and on in a love that never stops. That never hurts. For now... Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our calling together, what Easter offers us, is a chance to re-energize our shared hope. And to fight for purity together through the image of our risen Savior, who one day will come back for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to see him more clearly this morning than we did yesterday. That Jesus' beauty, his power, his promise will be life to us in our hearts this morning. We pray that you would purify us even now as we compare what he's offered us to everything else in our lives that's just passing away. And that we will love him as he is more than we love what only will break our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful to each other, to call us to put our hearts where, where they belong, on Christ and his promises, on our resurrected first fruits who's coming back. And I pray that you would make us a community of this hope that lives it and offers it to anyone who will listen. We pray to that now in Jesus' name. Amen.